basically sitting here chairing these three very smart people. Uh, this is the Creating Lasting Value Through Commemoration of the Civil War 150 session. So if you're looking for something else, you're in the wrong place. And uh, we've already made note that we've at least divided into boys and girls here, so I'm not sure if we're divided up regionally as well, but uh, it's beginning to fit with the topic a bit. What we're going to do this morning is to talk about three basic topics, and we're going to do all that talking at you before we throw the floor open for questions, but there will be plenty of time for questions, I assure you. And so let me first begin by introducing our panelists. To my far left is Jackie Barton from the Ohio Historical Society, and she's been manager of outreach for all of two weeks. Uh, and she also uh, begs indulgence because her voice is not all that she would like it to be, so you, you will find that out soon enough. To my immediate left is Donna Neary, who's director of the Kentucky Civil War Sesquicentennial Initiative. Um, and if you look at her business card, it's probably larger than most uh, for that very reason. And then to my right is Paul Levengood, who's the CEO and president of the Virginia Historical Society for the last 10 months, I guess, almost 10 months. And uh, he will be talking about Virginia, uh, which not unsurprisingly uh, is sort of at the top of its game with regard to the sesquicentennial. We're going to talk about three topics this morning. We're going to talk about lesson learn, lessons learned from past commemorations. We're going to talk about defining lasting benefits and setting goals. And we're talking about facing challenges and ensuring success. Before we begin, I want to just spend a minute or two uh, first pointing out that on the very last table to my left, as you're, to your right as you come in the door, there are a number of handouts there. So we would invite you to pick those up on your way out. I'd call attention to one that's called Call for Collabor Collaborators from the Traces of the Trade, A Story of the Deep North Project, which is a documentary about slavery in the northern states, um, and one that, uh, among other things, has presented a PBS broadcasted video of that same title on the Point of View series. Um, and we'll also talk toward the end of the session about some of the national initiatives that are underway under the aegis of the AASLH. But before we get to that, let's start with our lessons learned from past commemorations. And Donna, mm -hmm. you're on tap for that first. Okay. Do you want the mic? Um, Can you hear us with out the mic? Well, hello, and I'm very happy to be representing the Kentucky Historical Society today. Uh, I am, the title is the director of Kentucky Civil War Sesquicentennial Initiatives. That'll probably be the last time you'll hear that. That's not really very handy <laughs> to use that. Um, I am working at the Kentucky Historical Society with the entire staff. My job is really to pull together all the fabulous resources that are found at the Kentucky Historical Society. And it is a wealth of not only um, historical research, resources in the library and the special collections and our museum collections, our exhibitions. But the individuals who are employed at the Kentucky Historical Society represent a wide breadth of professional historians, archivists, uh, curators, etc., who understand Kentucky history and understand how to promote that for our audience, generally a Kentucky audience, but we have a broad uh, visitorship from around the world who come to Kentucky. There's lots of big industry in our state. Uh, Toyota is one of the industries. Uh, the horse industry brings people from all over the planet to the state of Kentucky. And so the Kentucky Historical Society in Frankfurt, our state capital, 
as a campus that includes a 30,000 square foot, fairly new building. We just had our 10th anniversary this year. That's where our, our uh, permanent exhibition is. We have a temporary exhibition hall. We have our archives, uh, special collections, and library in that building, as well as the offices of the staff. Then we also interpret the Old State Capitol, which is a Gideon Shryock building, the first architect of Kentucky that was uh, that is right down the street, and the Kentucky Military History Museum, which is in the building called the State Arsenal, built in the 1850s. And it is uh, currently under rehab renovation and will be a fabulous uh, renewed asset. It's there and part of our campus in walking distance. The commemoration of the Civil War sesquicentennial is following, following close on the hills of heels of Abraham Lincoln's bicentennial. And if anybody in this room doesn't know that Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky, then we have not done our job because that is what the main focus has been for the last several years. Um, we got a $4 million allotment from the General Assembly to plan the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial. And so we took great pains to learn from that, to understand how to use that money in, in um, good stewardship, take those funds that were given to the Kentucky Historical Society. Some of the folks that are in the room, Stuart Sanders, I see Russell Harris, uh, both work at the Kentucky Historical Society, Andy Stupridge may be here. But the programming that was taken forward with those funds, number one, were to confirm that everybody knew Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. And we've really thought, uh, phrased it in the way that we reclaimed Abraham Lincoln. We didn't really think too favorably of him after the Civil War. We sort of walked away from him. So af with the Bicentennial, it gave us an opportunity to take that commemoration as a platform for Kentucky to understand the importance of that individual, and not only he as a man, but his iconic presence, the, the philosophy that he put forward, the, his presidency in terms of the impact that he had on the United States and the world. And so that will be the platform for Kentucky's movement into the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And toward the end of the Civil War, uh, sesquicentennial, probably 2015, will be a year when we'll cycle back and we'll really focus once again on Abraham Lincoln and the year that he, uh, of his presidency when he was assassinated. So we're taking this platform that has been created through the funds from the state legislature, all the work that's been done and the programming that's happened from Abraham Lincoln, and we are sort of rolling that into the sesquicentennial and taking advantage of the context that we've made, uh, the funds that have been given. We've created legacy projects. We've got a traveling exhibition, uh, and we have traveled it within the state of Kentucky. Uh, we borrowed most of the artifacts. In fact, we, we have Abraham Lincoln's watch, but not a lot of artifacts that belong to, to him personally. And so we've been able to pull those things together and really cement Kentucky's role in the life, uh, the entire life of Abraham Lincoln, not only his birth, but the connections that were made. So that commemoration gave us that opportunity to move that as a vehicle. And that's what our plans are for the sesquicentennial. Well, I guess I should start off by saying what I'm not. I'm not Cheryl Jackson, <laughs> the, uh, the director of the Virginia Sesquicentennial of the American Civil War Commission, which is a Virginia General Assembly-created body. Um, but I do serve on the commission as a, um, a member as my, in my uh, role as VHS president and CEO. One, one of the things I should say we're guided by in very strongly um, as a principal is to 
how shall I put this, not be your father's or grandfather's Civil War commemoration. Uh, one of the members of our commission, along with me, is Bud Robertson, Dr. James Ty Robertson, Jr. at Virginia Tech. If you've read the book Troubled Commemoration, or you've, you're, you're familiar at all with the, the uh, National Civil War Centennial, you know that Bud Robertson was executive director of that body, and he was named by JFK after that group had gotten off to a somewhat bumpy start. Um, and it was really with the naming of Bud Robertson in late 61, when Alan Nevins took the chairmanship of the group, uh, that the centennial tried to focus more on commemoration than celebration and became much more of an educational effort than simply a uh, forum for reenactors and all this sort of thing. So with Bud Robertson being on this from the beginning, we've been driven as a commission by a sort of a, a four-part goal with those lessons of the past in mind, and I would also say lessons of our recent uh, quadricentennial Jamestown exhibition, uh, uh, commemoration as well in Virginia. Now the first of these goals is diversity, diversity of racial and ethnic groups as an audience, um, an attention to the fact that Virginia is now a heavily um, come here state, as we put it in Virginia. Almost 20% of Virginians are foreign born and a pretty hefty percentage never, uh, don't have any roots in Virginia and are here relatively recently. Um, so do not, they don't have that link to the Civil War that some Virginians feel. And also those who are not really understanding the relevance of the Civil War to their day-to-day -day lives. So we also have a goal of inclusiveness of programming, that the programming will be um, a balanced account of the war. This is again, a legacy of the centennial commemoration. So there's going to be uh, attention paid in, pro in proportion, fair proportion to the African-American story, the Union story, and the Confederate story in Virginia. Uh, there's an inclus inclusiveness in terms of a balance of battlefront and home front. Virginia, of all places, was a place where the battlefront and the ho home front were often coterminous. They were often the same place from month to month or day to day. Um, and we're also addressing social and cultural legacies along with the obvious military and political ones. This is something that the centennial didn't really recognize very well. We're trying to make this because this is a state-funded effort, uh, that statewide accessibility be our third goal. The commemoration will not just be located in one spot. There's no bricks and mortar being spent on this as there was in 1960 with a visitor center in Richmond. Instead. Uh, many localities will be involved with a variety of programs, um, as many as we can, in fact, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and the fourth and probably most fundamental underpinning goal is that education is our primary uh, cause. That commemoration period will be strongly educational in, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about more some of those specific programs, but that we keep in mind that without education, this does have the tendency to lapse into celebratory rather than commemorate, commemorating events. So. Um, forgive my voice, and I'm using the microphone because the louder I talk, the more likely it is I go into a coughing fit. <laughs> 
Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what we learned from our state bicentennial and how we're applying that uh, to the Civil War 150 for this part of the program. Ohio celebrated the state bicentennial in 2003, and while there were some pretty appealing interpretive things that happened regionally and locally, the official bicentennial commission also made some mistakes that I heard a lot about when the Civil War 150th launched. I received a lot of phone calls from academics and local historical societies who said, uh, we're not going to do this again, are we? And I wasn't involved in the bicentennial, so that's my full disclosure, but I heard from enough people that I'm pretty comfortable saying that there were some trends there that we learned from this time around. Uh, the first is that, like the issues described in the book Troubled Commemoration about the interpretive approach to the Civil War centennial, um, the Bicentennial Commission in Ohio chose to avoid complex history in favor of focusing on positive Ohio history. Um, there was a quote in the ASLH brief about the, um, about the Civil War activities at last year's conference from Robert Penn Warren's book Legacy of the Civil War that I thought summed this up perfectly. He said, Americans should seek to end the obscene gratifications of history and try to learn what the contemplation of the past, conducted with psychological depth and humane breadth, can do for us. We didn't do that in the Bicentennial. Um, we appointed committees that were called things like Women's History or Civil War, and then we talked about um, really good, happy, feel-good things, which is nice on one hand, but didn't really uh, push us forward as scholars and historians. We're approaching the interpretation for the Civil War 150th collaboratively as a way to avoid this. Um, we're convening a group of scholars, a small group of scholars that have very diverse perspectives on the 19th century in America and in Ohio, and we're going to ask them some questions and give them some of these materials to look at, and then we're going to let them go at it. And uh, we've asked them to come up with an interpretive framework that is short and leaves us lots of room to fill it in, but that um, asks questions of us and gets at interesting, complex things. And then we're going to put it out to the public for comment and revise it based on what we get back. And when that's done, um, what we hope to do with it is not just guide our own official Civil War commemorative events and, and activities like traveling exhibits and such, but also make it available as a list of History Day topics for History Day kids. Make it available to college professors to drive student projects and um, book research, articles, etc. Give it to high school teachers to drive student projects. Um, basically put it out there and see what comes back to us. We're a little nervous. We've never done anything like this but um, it's something that we're really excited about, too. We're interested in seeing what happens when we don't drive the story from our own central organization. In terms of programs, two of the most visible and promoted elements of the Bicentennial were Bicentennial Barns and Bicentennial Bells. And... Um, they, the barns um, were painted. They were on visible roadways. One county, each county got one. Um, and they were painted up with a big picture of the shape of Ohio, and it said, you know, Ohio, 1803 to 2003. The bells were created for the anniversary, one for each county, 88 counties in Ohio, and there were big public events in each county that celebrated the bicentennial, and they rang the bells. There were three problems with this, um, three that I'm going to talk about. There may have been more, but... <laughs> Uh, one, there was no long-term plan for maintenance or future use of the barns. In fact, I found out this morning when I was looking at the barn website that the Hawking County barn has been torn down. Um, the rest of them are peeling unless the private homeowner has chosen to have them repainted over time. 
the and the more to the root of this is the program wasn't about barn maintenance or historic barn preservation and Ohio like a lot of states is facing a catastrophic loss of its historic barns instead it was let's paint up these barns that are visible from the road and say that it's great that we've been a state for all this time and and you know that's nice on one level but i you know when i heard from constituents they were saying where's the lasting value in this? Our barns are falling down, but we painted, we tarted up some barns and left the rest to fall down. Forgive my uh, flippancy. But. And the bells were focused on a one-time event, one per county. And what I heard from societies is that they're gathering dust in courthouses and in storage. Um, even worse, the third issue with this approach is that I received a couple calls from pretty still stinging and irate county folks who said, you know, the Columbus bigwigs descended on our county and took over our event, and it was more about highlighting commission members and statewide officials and, and, kind, of, and kind of that high-level thing, and not so much about local history, and it didn't really give us room to tell the story we wanted to tell about the state's bicentennial. Um, it wasn't the case with all of them, but it was pervasive enough that, like I said, I got unsolicited phone calls, so I thought, this is a pretty big deal. For the Ohio Civil War 150, our goals for everything we undertake as the official effort include creating lasting value, and you're going to hear me use that phrase over and over for the rest of today. We want to create lasting value for Ohioans. We have backed away from expensive, splashy events. That has not earned us friends in certain camps. Some of our reenactor groups are not real pleased that we're not going to put on some massive reenactments around the state. But um, what we want to do is really focus on projects that make collection resources more widely available, that pilots some new service models, that creates new partnerships and new networks around the state, all things that will continue on past 2015. Um, we also want to be a support for groups that want to do things like put on events and really celebrate pieces of the history. So we're, we'll talk about that, too, about being supportive of that. But when we talk about the limited resources available in Ohio from the official effort, we really are thinking what will be lasting value. And so far we've been ruthless about saying, you know, that's not a lasting value proposition there, so we're going to back away from being the core sponsor of that. Okay, we're going to move on to those lasting values by define, talking about defining lasting benefits and setting goals. Um, Jackie, you might as well just oh, keep the mic and keep on rolling. I forgot that I was first for this one. Um, when we talk about creating lasting value and setting goals, uh, I should say I'm the least far along. I represent the state that's sort of uh, the furthest behind of the three that are here. Um, I took up the Civil War 150th position at the beginning of January this year, and um, it's so it's a... Uh, it's a somewhat new thing for the Ohio Historical Society to be, to be coordinating. Some of our regions or counties or um, cities are further along, but as a state, we're a little bit further behind. So we're still in planning in a lot of ways. Um, there's a survey as one of the handouts, a uh, quick uh, brief summary. If you want more information on that, you can email me, and I'll give you more in-depth information. But I think the key here is that when we stepped into this, one of the things we said, in addition to we're going to create lasting value, is we'd like to know what kind of value our constituents want from us um, instead of deciding for them what they might want. And so we hosted a survey online. We actually had 470 responses, and um, it didn't go out to every citizen in Ohio, it went to leaders of historical organizations, it went to teachers who have worked with various programs with history organizations, and um, it went to some Civil War interest groups, reenactment groups, uh, roundtables, things like that. 
So it was very targeted, and I'm, I'm very proud that we got as many responses as we did. I think it indicates the interest. Um, I, first thing that we noticed is how very statewide this is. 70% of our respondents said their home community had Civil War resources on the ground, things like cemeteries, markers, historic sites, collections or museums, monuments or memorials. Uh, most of you may not know about Ohio's Civil War history. It's actually pretty pretty significant. Um, some argue that we had more recruits per capita than any other state. I guess that's contested by some other states, but we had over 300,000 recruits from Ohio. Um, we had a number of generals. Uh, we may have had more generals from our state than any other. There were members of the cabinet who were from Ohio. So even just looking purely at the military story, it's a significant story. And when you think about the impact on the state of that number of people going off to war, it's, it's a huge impact on Ohio. The Civil War also catapulted Ohio into being a political and economic powerhouse in the country. If you think about the period of time when all the presidents were elected from Ohio, when we were the center of commerce and population, it was directly following the Civil War. Um, Respondents indicated that what topics were related most to their work and their organization. And interestingly enough, it, the military didn't come in that far ahead of the context for war or the home front. Um, most organizations had plans to participate. Only about 11% didn't have any plans to participate. And remember, this is teachers we were asking, too. So these are teachers saying they were planning to do something in the classroom. This is organizations wanting to do something. So people are interested again. Um, really importantly, when we asked people open-ended to describe what kind of assistance they wanted, we got really clear uh, trends. We were asked for coordination. They wanted to know what was happening elsewhere. They wanted to know what their peers were doing and how to connect to them. They wanted a place where they could share information and have a calendar shared. They wanted promotion and marketing help. Ohio's tourism office is horribly underfunded and is getting worse. It's actually been zeroed out um, two years from now. So... Um, people are really looking for where can we get help to promote what we're doing. They wanted funding, no surprise there, um, and we are going to do what we can to try to link them up to sources. And they wanted content. Um, they wanted speaker information, artifacts, traveling exhibits, co uh, collections items, etc. We asked them some questions about what they had available to access content in terms of budget and space, and they said they didn't have more than $1,500, and some of them didn't have more than 500 and the vast majority had less than 600 square feet available. This is important, and some of you may be nodding and saying, yeah, that sounds like my organization. This is important because a lot of times when organizations craft traveling exhibit programs, they're thinking about profit-making or they're thinking about Big Bang, and they're making these big exhibits that a lot of our constituents can't even begin to think about accessing. They don't have the floor space, let alone the budget. So this has really led us to some thinking that I'll get to in the last segment about how this aligns with where our organization is going in terms of how we serve people. And the last thing the survey told us, um, a couple things about lasting value. Seventy percent of respondents were interested in participating in a digitization project. OHS is one of the state's leaders in digitization. We have a great program. We have uh, one of only two special cameras. I won't even pretend to know how to describe it except for that it goes around and around and there's a vacuum table that flips all over the place and you can digitize just about anything you want. Um, and so here we have this great program, and so far we've been doing a lot of work on our own collections and some on other collections, but we really, we kind of thought, well, does anybody really want to access this 
who others who are out around the state? Well, a whole lot of them would like to. So we're starting to look at how can we do that in a way that is affordable and easy and gets their collections out there. Lasting value. Back to lasting value. This isn't just about doing this for the commemoration. It's about then making having those collections available well beyond 2015. Um, the other thing is that 70% of teachers surveyed indicated they'd be interested in high-quality distance learning and other educational programs on Civil War topics. And again, those are things that have a life well beyond the end of a commemoration. So for us, the, the short message is we have very limited resources, and we have a lot of constituents that have fairly limited resources. And so we're really looking for how can we create some lasting value, things that will continue to serve beyond the commemoration, but that will also really show that we are actively engaging in this commemoration and get people excited and, and work on that excitement. Well, we at the Kentucky Historical Society have um, are framing the sesquicentennial within the titled program, Discovering Together, Kentucky's Civil War Landscape. And when we thought about using the word landscape, we were thinking very clearly about the political landscape, the uh, geographical landscape. So that word we felt would be very useful to us to really think about how Kentucky was affected by um, the Civil War. And in our case, um, we've got two states who very definitely made a stand in Kentucky was a border state. And there, were, there are um, stories from all aspects of the Civil War in all these states, but Kentucky's role as a border state, as um, a state that maintained its spot in the Union, it did not secede, but in fact was a slaveholding state. There's, there's a very complicated, messy, um, confusing past about Kentucky that Frankly, some of the folks who live in Kentucky, born and raised, who are going to school there, and adults that I've encountered, don't really understand the nuances of a border state. And so we are challenged with making sure that we understand um, who our audience is and who we're talking to. So when we frame the interpretation, when we talk to our audiences, we are clearly communicating the importance of Kentucky. It's geographic importance. It was a supplier to both the North and the South, and its context in terms of transportation and its geographic location on the Western Front are all pieces of the story that, frankly, have not come forward. So we understand that there are many stories that we can tell about Kentucky during the Civil War that will be new information to the folks who are our audiences. Uh, so discovering together is a way for us to say we're the Kentucky Historical Society. We see ourselves as sort of the centerpiece, the central resource for history in Kentucky, but we don't have all the answers. We don't know um, the answer to all the questions that are out there. We don't know all the questions to ask. We're looking to our audiences and we are partnering with people in Kentucky and those visitors who come to get the Civil War story in Kentucky to pose those questions, help us frame them in a way that brings lasting value to um, the Kentucky Historical Society. And um, you can see how infectious that was, lasting value to us too. Now, I'll go back and we'll start saying that. But uh, we, we really kind of talk in terms of sustaining at what we do in our programs, and this is 20, 2009 and 2015 is the end. We're talking about sustaining staff, facilities, resources, interest of our audiences 
for a really long time. I mean, you think about um, how our media system is so briefly captures things and how uh, something that was news in March we might not necessarily know about now. So to sustain the, the Civil War interest over this period of time is going to be a big challenge for us. And so our sense of it is that if we constantly change the questions, if we ask new questions, if we create this sense of um, not being the experts and saying, here's what you have to know about the Civil War. This is why Kentucky was important. We can be resources. We are expert in the, in the historical research and the writing, and there are experts in Kentucky and, and the world about the Civil War. But our sense is that we're going to be a central resource. We also are, our goal is to serve, Kentucky has 120 counties. It's just a huge area to cover. And so we want to service every county in Kentucky and as Jackie was saying, create this sense of connection where those counties will have their own activities and their own programming and their own identity for the Civil War. And frankly, it can be very, it'll be very divergent. Some counties are strictly Union, some are completely Confederate in their ancestry, and others are a mixture. When you get to some of our large population centers like Louisville, um, it was a very, a Union-focused place where it was a hub of, of uh, it was right on the river. That was a hub of industry. It was a thriving, economically booming community during the Civil War because of all the production that was happening. And there are other parts of the state that, frankly, were almost destitute during the Civil War because of the, the um, conditions there. So even within our single state, there is such a diversity of reality and experience. We want to welcome all of those stories so folks can communicate what it is that was important to their part of the state. Um, regionally, it's a very diverse region from a very mountainous um, region in the east. The western coal fields are in, in the west. There's a river that runs. Um, I think we have more waterways in Kentucky next to Alaska, uh, you know, coastline. It's really sort of a weird, fun fact. There's lots of water there. There's lots of railroads. So the transportation is going to be a huge deal. We're also going to focus on being very market-driven. So when people show interest in something, we're going to try to make sure that we can give that information out. So if somebody comes forward and asks a question and we realize that there's a big interest in certain aspects of the history, we're going to try to satisfy that in a way that uh, from the resources that we have at the Kentucky Historical Society. And we, our hope is that we don't uh, drain the institution financially by doing this huge commemoration that we are able to sustain economically and perhaps even create some revenue base for uh, folks who may want to do tours or purchase some of the uh, products that we may come up, up with over the time period. Well, um, picking up on this idea of the lasting benefit, one, one of the things we know is that there's a lot at stake uh, for us in this commemoration. Uh, we know the power that the centennial had in shaping sort of people's perceptions of, of the Civil War. We know that there is um, that there's a real opportunity here. And we know that people still don't understand everything. We know that they don't necessarily understand why the war came and what the stakes were for people who made the decision in Virginia which way to go. Remember, Virginia split into two states during the war. So there was an internal division as well. And we don't 
we know that people don't understand why the war matters today. We, we understand that these are the questions at stake. And sort of trying to answer those questions, trying to advance public understanding and discourse about this is about the best lasting benefit that we hope we can achieve. Um, to do this, the commission is um, intent on a kind of a decentralized approach. Uh, there's a very robust website that's already up, the commission's website, that I urge you to check out. It's on the brochures and things back there. It's virginiacivilwar.org. And if you go on there, you'll notice that of the 134 Virginia counties and cities, almost all of them now have local sesquicentennial commissions. These are kind of uh, umbrella under the uh, statewide commission, but they're very much independent. Uh, they're doing their own events, and there's, there are re-grant programs and all sorts of stuff that the commission is doing to try to in, spur the, the work on of these local places. Uh, we're trying through this decentralized approach not to make this a um, rich, you have to come to Richmond to see, to see what's going on. And along those lines, uh, to the VHS's horn here a little bit, we are the partner of the commission in putting on an exhibition. The exhibition is called An American Turning Point, the Civil War in Virginia, and it actually has three separate components. The first is a traditional gallery exhibition, about a 3,000 square foot show. It's going to start in Richmond at the VHS, and it's going to be there the entire year 2011. But unlike the centennial, where you had to come to Richmond, this show is going to come to Virginians. It's going to go to seven locations outside of Richmond after its initial run at our place, ending in Appomattox um, at the yet-to-be-constructed, but we hope will soon be finished, Museum of the Confederacy facility in Appomattox. So it will go to all parts of the state, far southwest, uh, northern Virginia, Hampton Roads area, um, and so on and so on. So by taking this out there to people, it's going to be much more accessible, I think, and much more interactive. It's going to be very heavy on experiences and interactive technologies than um, any Civil War exhibition I think people have ever seen. The second component of the exhibition is a low-cost panel exhibition with no artifacts attached to it that will be available, and I should say the first exhibition that I meant, the first the major gallery exhibition, is free to all these, these, these sites, as is the panel exhibition. And that's going to be something that local libraries or schools or small museums, all they have to do is pay for shipping. Um, it's easy, going to be easy to assemble. It's going to come pre-created. You're just going to be able to pop it up, put it on a run for a couple of weeks, and have people come in and see it. So there are going to be uh, a couple of those that are going to be going around the state. And the third, and I think this is what encouraged uh, NEH to give us a, a very uh, generous grant just a couple of weeks ago, is the Civil War um, mobile museum. It's going to be a tractor trailer that's going to be outfitted with several of the interactive components we have in the gallery exhibition, and it's going to be able to travel not just around the state, but around the country. In fact, that's something that NEH is very keen on. So I would urge any of you who are interested in this to get in touch with Cheryl Jackson at the commission and let her, let her know that you may be um, a, a potential site for the tractor trailer to come. Along with these, these uh, traditional kind of museum components, we have a series of conferences. And on the back table, the commission has a little slick here that talks about the conference that we held in April in Richmond. This is a great example of just how much interest there is in this topic. We had over 2,000 people come to Richmond for this, from 26 different states. These are not just Virginians. Um, 
and 500 viewed the webcast of this, including a soldier stationed in Iraq. Um, so there's an incredible amount of interest out there. The upcoming um, sessions will be on a variety of topics. Next year, 2010, will be race, slavery, and the Civil War. In 11, American military strategies in the Civil War. In 12, leadership and generalship. In 13, the home front in the Civil War. In 14, the Civil War in a global context. And in 15, memory of the Civil War. In addition, I would say probably um, the way we all do things that have lasting effects today is that all of this will live in one form or another in the digital realm after it's all finished. The Commission's website will go on, as will some of these interactives for the exhibition, which are going to be put on the VHS's website. There is also a document digitization program that the Commission has sponsored, which goes around the state, takes mobile scanning stations to various parts of Virginia, and encourages people to come out and have their ancestors' letters or diaries scanned. They're not trying to acquire them necessarily, just at least make sure there's a digital record of them in case they never do come to a manuscript repository. And I guess I roll into, you roll right into, into the next. Facing challenges and ensuring success. Well, I mentioned the challenge of tr making sure we get this right. In Virginia, I think um, it's really incumbent on us to be especially careful. We were sort of the um, epicenter of the centennial. Um, in fact, the, if you read the literature, the Virginia, um, the local Virginia commission was one of the most ornery and individualistic um, jingoistic of any of the state um, or local um, uh, bodies that's, that, um, that uh, commemorated the centennial. So we've got a huge sort of, we've got a huge um, mountain in front of us to climb. I would also say Virginia, the stakes are very high because the passion among Virginians is extraordinarily strong for this subject, more than, than many other states I know of. Um, so we have uh, the challenge of making sure that we don't, um, well, probably that we annoy people in equal measure, <laughs> which would be a pretty good indication that we're doing something right. I will give you a couple of, you know, examples of the fact that we've put up in the last, well, I guess in the last 10 years, several, we've been involved in several exhibitions and programs that have raised a fuss. We did an exhibition, Lee and Grant, which was um, coincided with the bicentennial of Lee's birth, but our thinking was we'll put these two monumental figures together so we're providing some sort of a balanced and, and nuanced comparison. And we got a lot of grief for that from some folks. That's something we have to be prepared for. We have to know that that's coming. I see Charlie Bryan sitting in the back of the room. Uh, he has files I've inherited of angry letters that we got from folks who, quite frankly, say, how dare you put that butcher Grant in the same breath with the sainted Marsh Robert. So we have these things in our mind that we know are going to be, are going to be issues we have to confront. Um, we have to recognize the fact that, as I mentioned before, there are people for whom the Civil War does not resonate at all. This is not going to be something that they're expecting to, uh, to entertain. They're not going to be something that they're especially interested in participating in. We have to try to reach those people. We have to try to do this using the latest technology. Um, this is one of the things that I'm pretty excited about. If this conference is any indication, I think there's going to be quite a future for the digital products that are created. 
whether those are vodcasts, blogs, online features of the various websites. Um, but I also think this is an opportunity, as this conference in April showed, to bring together people in a way that allows them to discuss things, to raise their concerns, to ask their questions. And we can't do this in a top-down way. There has to be this opportunity at every stop along the way. So, facing challenges? Good. Jackie? Wait for my crutch here. Um, so, on April 27th, 09, Governor Strickland gave us a directive that acknowledged the significance of the Civil War in Ohio, established an advisory committee, and named the Ohio Historical Society as the coordinator of the effort. Um, there were no public funds attached to this, and there haven't been any public funds allocated to date. Uh, to put that in context, there were over $8 million given to the Ohio state's bicentennial in 2003. Uh, I think that that probably reflects the changes in our economic climate as much as anything, but it also reflects a little bit of commemoration fatigue. I think a number of us are facing that in our states. We've had uh, Lewis and Clark and Lincoln and Bicentennials and all that good stuff. And I think some of our public officials are failing to um, or are sort of getting tired of, of hearing about commemorations all one after the other. At the same time, uh, the society has seen uh, just since the beginning of fiscal year 2008, uh, OHS saw a 45% cut in its state funding. Some of you may have seen news articles um, we've had some pretty draconian things happening at the state level. Ohio has two significant battlefield sites, according to the National Park Service. One has absolutely no preservation and interpretation, and one has a preservation group working on it and an interpretive trail that is meant to go in the ground in the next couple of years. We're really excited about that. Um, but we don't expect to see extensive out-of-state tourism the way a Virginia or a Maryland or a Pennsylvania might. Uh, Buffington Island isn't necessarily on a whole lot of folks' lists up in the top 10 or even 20 Civil War battlefields that they want to see, unless they're Kentuckian and they really like John Hunt Morgan. Um, <laughs> All these challenges mean we have had to think about the commemoration uh, pragmatically as an organization, moving away from sort of the lasting value for the state, knowing that's the foundation for everything. As an organization, we had to back up and say, what the heck can we do for no money in an organization with shrinking resources? Um, how, do, how do we make this make sense? And what we've come to do is think about this commemoration in terms of leveraging every resource we have through partnership and making the initiative work within the parameters of where our own organization is going long term. OHS is in the middle of a total reinvention. Um, the budget cuts we've experienced more than the 45% I mentioned since 2008, since 2000, we've been seeing cut after cut every biennium, if not every year, have necessitated a complete shift in what we do and how we do it. Um, we are looking at being the organization wants to be the Google for all things Ohio history, if you want to look at it that way. Um, less about ourselves and our programs and our staff and our collections, and more about how do we make those things that we have that are ours available and also connect everybody in the state who's doing this good work at different levels to each other and connect their resources to each other. We don't have the resources anymore to do everything for everybody and decide what everybody should do, and nor should we, some of us believe. And so we're working really hard to think how can we do all these, this connecting and really facilitating. Um, so 
What we're basically doing is we're looking at the Civil War 150 as an opportunity to pilot different approaches for OHS and to develop some service models that we plan to use on into the future. And so we're using the anniversary as a test case. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of interest. It's a perfect period of time. And it's a way to easily narrow our focus to try to test some of these things in a manageable way. A couple specifics. Um, web portal. Our website looks the same as it looked in 1995 when it launched. I don't know if anybody else is in that, in that place, but we've been paralyzed as we've tried to move forward. We have a massive amount of information on there, um, but, it's, but it's been a challenge to get it reorganized. Um, and we really want that web portal to stop serving just as an OHS website where you find OHS collections, OHS staff, OHS sites. But we want it to become a place where you find historic sites all over the state, no matter who's running them, where you find collections related to WPA in Ohio, Civil War in Ohio, whatever, no matter whose collections they are. We really want it to be a thing where if you're a history organization or just an interested citizen in Ohio and you want to know something about historic cemeteries, you'll automatically go to ohiohistory.org because you know you'll be able to find out what you need to find out. And, and we're getting comfortable with the idea that you might be finding out things that aren't about OHS, and that's okay. <laughs> um, so the Civil War 150 website is kind of a mini version of this. We're launching in the next two weeks. Um, it is providing a platform for collections and information for not just OHS stuff, but other organizations. There's, it's ba actually built on a WordPress platform and Omeka, if anyone's familiar with that, it allows folks to upload their own collections, upload pictures from their events. There's a calendar where people put their own events in. So it's really moving away from that top-down, it's all about OHS and the official commission approach, and more about, y'all tell us what you've got, what you're doing, what you want people to come and see, and let us help you, you know, get that elevated. The big shift is, um, in terms of our focus as an organization, is we're moving towards what we're calling collections learning. Uh, we are moving away from, again, this sort of glossy, massive exhibit approach and into a more um, collections-based approach that is about getting the real stuff that we have out there more. And that can be people coming to our sites and accessing our collections for research and for programs. It can also be about us putting our stuff out there more. We've been very protective of our collections, and we're starting to work with our curators now to say, can't we make some of this stuff available? Why can't we let the McCook House have the Henry Rifle, for example, for a few months? Um, so, you know, in the, we hear a lot of stories from 30 years ago about how you came, OHS came here and they took the Henry Rifle out of the McCook House and it's in Columbus. And, you know, I wasn't here 30 years ago doing this work, but I can tell you that I've heard enough of those stories that we were taking collections out of local sites. And we're reversing that now, and we're really looking at ourselves and saying, maybe we made some mistakes along the way, and we can learn from them now. Um, what does the Civil War 150 mean as a pilot to all this? One of the things we're doing, and there's a lot of planning still to come, so forgive me for the fuzziness in this piece, but we're just still kind of figuring out what it all means. Um, we're working on micro-exhibits, which really aren't exhibits so much as they are um, collections of collections items that will get out and around the state and allow localities and local organizations to sort of define the story themselves. We piloted this in Akron at a John Brown commemorative event in June, and it was really successful. A curator went with a collection of things that a soldier would have carried on his person, um, 
and just kind of hung out and talked to people as they came by. And depending on what people were interested in, answered lots of questions. And um, the Summit County Historical Society was thrilled to have those objects there. And it kind of got them pulling some of the things out of their collection that aligned with those things. And then we packed it up and left at the end of the day. No loan agreement, no insurance policies, no big hoopla and a big traveling exhibit show that required 12 exhibit designers to install it. So now we're talking about how can we make that even more tenable where we don't have to have a curator. Can we create a standardized case that would fit a six to eight foot table at any organization where you could choose some items out of our collection that we can make accessible and just get them going out and around there. You know, how many of you have 14,000 mini balls in your collection? It's like we've been holding this stuff so tightly, but to what end? And some of the stuff we do have to protect, the Henry rifle. But some of the stuff we have to protect to a point. But really, let's, we're thinking let's get it out there. Um, let's let people see it and get them excited. The other thing that we're doing is a traveling exhibit approach similar to what Paul described. Um, this is in response to what we were asked for in the survey. And the idea is to have a set of panel exhibits that we work on based on this interpretive, collaborative interpretive framework that will also have some templates and technical assistance for local organizations to add their local story if they'd like. Um, in terms of fabrication, we're looking at something that's indoor, outdoor, and standalone. So if you're a community heritage festival, you can put it up outside and not worry about it. Um, and we're actually in fundraising mode for that. Externally, we're seeking to leverage partners and networks and in the interest of communities to achieve more through coordination and collaboration. And Rich is here from the National Underground um, Railroad Freedom Center. They're one of the partners we've been beginning to build a relationship with around this. We're looking around at the regions and saying, you know, we can't coordinate an entire state, 88 counties. We have hundreds and hundreds of local historical societies in our network. How can we help them but not try to be in control of all this because everything will get choked um, through OHS. And so we're looking around at the regions and saying where are rational partners who can serve as coordinators within their regions and kind of keep the information flowing regionally. We can do what we can at the state level and work with those regional partners and really, again, leveraging what we've got, knowing that those organizations have a vested interest in this anniversary as well. Um, and I'll just say in closing on this piece that I think Thinking about who the partners are has been um, a challenge and has been really interesting because when you look at all these things we've talked about learning, about story, the importance of story and who's involved, diversity and all of that, it starts to make you think about, well, who are we involving? You know, presidential sites are important, but if you only choose presidential sites as your partners, what message are you sending? If you only choose great big regional historical societies, what, are, what message are you sending? If you don't choose an Underground Railroad Freedom Center or the Harriet Beecher Stowe House, but you do choose the Grant sites. Grant was from Ohio, by the way. <laughs> um, and we're very proud of him there. But um, I'll, I'll match my Lincoln against your Grant. <laughs> um, we, um, well, at least they thought highly of each other, we know. Um, but you know, that has been an interesting question to answer. And I think as you think about your own commemorations, even at the local level, are you thinking about who you work with? ASLH in one of our conference calls suggested, you know, are you tapping into Juneteenth committees as a way to reach the local African-American population? Are you, you know, those sorts of things. And so I think we all, no matter what level you're working at, have some tough questions to answer about if we're really trying to involve different constituencies, what are we doing to reach them? 
And I'm still trying to answer that question, so if you have some ideas, I'm, I'm open. Thank you. When we think about um, the budget at the Kentucky Historical Society, until about two weeks ago, it was me. Uh, the entire budget for the sesquicentennial was bringing me on to, to work with the Historical Society. And um, we got some news a couple weeks ago that the transportation enhancement dollars for Kentucky were awarded, and the Kentucky Historical Society received $1 million of transportation enhancement funds to go directly towards sesquicentennial programming on a grant that we wrote. And what I would encourage um, those of you who are looking at pots of money, my career has been in historic preservation. It's been uh, Section 106. Overwhelmingly, it's not been in museum. I've been affiliated with and work with museums and historic sites but sort of in the capacity as a preservationist more than as a museum professional. And so when we thought about pots of money, we obviously thought about those that all of you here will think about, but transportation enhancement dollars come to every state. They're required by law to come to every state, and there are very competitive um, applications for TE funds. And the state of Kentucky had uh, $13 million to give out this year. And so when the grant writer and I looked at the pot of money and understood what we needed to accomplish over four years, service 120 counties, become the centerpiece for the Civil War sesquicentennial in Kentucky, um, promote programming that would be valuable to people uh, around the, the state, but also those visitors who come here, we were thinking we needed a lot of money to do that. And so we looked at the transportation enhancement funds as a way to do that. What you need to do is to frame that in the context of transportation. How is this, it's either a transportation story, is there value along a transportation route? There, it's, it's a very um, broad process. If you make that direct link and that direct connection, the application that we wrote was called River Rails and Roadways, Kentucky Civil War Landscape. And in our promotional public piece, we're calling it Discovering Kentucky, uh, excuse me, Discovering Together, Kentucky Civil War Landscape. But when we framed the application, we devised it as a statewide project. Many TE applications are very specific to a locality. Uh, they can be streetscapes. They can be preservation of historic building. There are many, many ways you can use that money. But we felt that if we framed it as a statewide program that would service 120 counties, that that would be something different that it would perhaps catch the attention and the the uh, frankly in Kentucky this the Lincoln bicentennial has been so successful legislators have gotten engaged uh, there have been there were four million dollars given to that over the biennium uh, there have been national and international attention um, to Kentucky and so I think our legislators and those folks who understand tourism and travel and those funds got it they understood that this commemoration could be very valuable, the sesquicentennial, in terms of tourism dollars, et cetera. Um, so the transportation enhancement money will be used ultimately to support the work that we do at the Kentucky Historical Society every day and that we would have had to do in terms of a, a commemoration for the sesquicentennial. Some of the products that we're going to do, we have a history mobile, a big semi that travels right now. It's outfitted for Lincoln. Uh, the funds will allow us to put a new skin on it and a new exhibition that will travel. And our goal is to hit 120 counties with that. We've got a program called Museums to Go. It's a um, multi-panel, mobile, um, literally it looks like a window shade and you 
put them up in anywhere from the shopping mall to the public library to a teacher can have them at school. And those are going to be outfitted with a, a, a Civil War story of Kentucky. And we are going to travel those. We're going to make five sets of those so we can send them out and get a good rotation. We're going to do a middle grades curriculum. We found that, uh, in, well, in Kentucky, the eighth grade is the year they talk about the Civil War. The fourth and fifth are state and local history and United States history. So we're, we're looking at the education folks at our place are going to look at where is the biggest bang for the buck to hit on that. And so we're going to do a, a, a middle grades curriculum that will have sustainability. It, it can be used forever once it's created, but these funds can be used for that. Uh, we're going to look at traveling exhibitions. We are not convinced that we are actually going to field our own exhibition, frankly, because our collections in the Civil War, we don't know exactly what we have, and we know that we probably don't have enough that we know about at this point to do um, an exhibition. But our sense of it is that if we can frame Kentucky's story and reflect on what other places, so the Virginia Mobile History um, exhibit is very exciting to us because we can bring that to our place and create a point of discussion so people in Kentucky can see what other states were doing, what was happening. So it gives us an opportunity to, to encourage conversation and to, frankly, put more in our building and on our campus to talk about those stories. Um, we, are, we have a thriving historic Howie marker program like most states do, and we're going to focus on Civil War-themed markers, uh, either repair, replacement, or new stories. And, frankly, some of them need to be rewritten because, in reflection, they don't clearly portray the story or the history um, as it should be portrayed or some of the perceptions. A lot of them were done during the centennial of uh, the Civil War, and they are very specifically focused on, you can tell who wrote the text. And so we want to make sure that it, we're portraying that. It's our program at the Historical Society for the State. We want to make sure that <coughs> that's done in a way that values the history and is very factual and straightforward, but that puts it, frames it in a way that has meaning to people that see it. We're also going to do interpretive panels on our campus, uh, and we're not really sure how we're going to do that, what stories we're going to tell, but that's what we're going to tell the transportation stories. So we're going to cite them on our place so visitors who are on foot can encounter them, and they'll be um, within the context of our campus. So folks can uh, in, uh, look at that. Our arsenal, um, the state arsenal was built in 1850. It's a fabulous building. It, it's a Gothic revival. It looks like a castle on a hill. It's right above the Kentucky River. It was built in 1850. It served as a cartridge factory during the Civil War, and women uh, made cartridges that were sent out into the theater, the Western Theater. And so um, we want to make sure that that is, it's our military history museum. It's not a Civil War museum, but we want to make sure that these funds can go toward interpreting sort of one aspect of the importance of that building to Kentucky and give exterior passive um, interpretive panels so that building can serve on our campus even when the doors are closed and when it's not open for tours. And we are very interested in connecting Kentucky to the Underground Railroad uh, Network of Freedom. Kentucky was, has been in on this conversation from the very beginning, but has never had an official trail established. In, his, in Kentucky, there's a, um, a eastern, a central, and western trails that have been documented as the way folks got out. And Kentucky's in some ways like the eye of the needle. If you could get through Kentucky and get over the Ohio River, you still had a lot 
of challenges to face, but it was just another hurdle. And so we, we want to be able to talk about the Underground Railroad, and frankly, we feel that that will open the Kentucky Historical Society to whole new audiences. Uh, there's a whole new level of interest. There are people who are seeking their heritage, whatever it may be, and we're not real, we don't really have that on the landscape of Kentucky. The, the enslaved African Americans, uh, self-emancipation is not a story that you can find at markers in Kentucky. And uh, we want to create regional relationships with states like Ohio. There are six states that touch the uh, boundaries of Kentucky. And we want to make sure that if it's from the south, the east, the west, or the north, that we're making those sort of regional connections. So it wasn't as if you were in Kentucky and nothing happened around you. We want to make these real regional connections with what are going on. And that million dollars, frankly, will allow us to do that work. We probably would have done that work, but it allows us to frame it in a way that's focused on the sesquicentennial and that allows us then to have this exponential value for that. We'll have Underground Railroad um, trail, whatever form that takes. We'll have um, the historic highway markers will be enhanced. We'll have this middle grades curriculum that'll be cre created. The historical societies, um, we call it the HISMO, the, the history mobile. We'll go out and about and travel, and then we'll have an opportunity to bring other viewpoints and other voices from around the country to Kentucky so we can reflect on what was happening in our place and how that has value to the people who lived here. And frankly, we want to create a place that is safe and um, promotes open dialogue because in Kentucky there is, there's still a lot of complexity about relationships. I know that happens all over the, the country. But there are, there are so many unresolved historical questions that create difficulty for modern people living modern lives in Kentucky. And so we hope to be a point of um, discussion, a, a, an open forum, an intellectual sort of on the most basic level, a place where people can come, have those conversations, and hopefully leave with better understanding, solid historical research, understand if they want to look at their family history, where they can find that, if they want to do... Um, have the History Mobile come to their kid's school if their teacher wants to take a tour. And we're connecting with agencies of the state. The State Historic Preservation Office obviously oversees all the historic sites, uh, has connections with all the historic sites. The National Park Service has several sites in Kentucky that have relationship to the Civil War. And local institutions and organizations that have these fabulous resources across the state. So we're tr we, our goal is to be sort of the center point, so places that may not necessarily be a destination and tourism talk for heritage tourism, somebody may not necessarily know to go to Pulaski County to see this place that is important on the Underground Railroad, but through this big program for the sesquicentennial, we can funnel people to these maybe lesser-known sites and create this whole sort of sense of investigation, discovery, um, that we're all finding out together what the importance of Kentucky was during the Civil War. So we're very excited. We're certainly very, very pleased to have gotten some money to do that with. And in the near future, the governor is, uh, we understand, going to create a historic, um, excuse me, a um, sesquicentennial commission. So we'll have a commission that will actually be able to serve in a capacity to help promote all the sesquicentennial programming as well. Before we take your questions, I want to spend just a moment or two quickly updating you on two initiatives that the AASLH is moving forward with regard to the sesquicentennial. 
The first is a national program called Transforming a Nation Legacy of America's Civil War. Um, this program will uh, rely entirely on the ben beneficence of the National Endowment for the Humanities because we've just submitted a request for a million dollars to underwrite the program. The program is national in that it, we have essentially divided the country up into seven regions. We've identified a host institution in each of those seven regions, and that host institution will, uh, funding permitting, host a two-day program on the sesquicentennial. The first day will be uh, a scholarly conference that'll have a keynote address and three panels that'll be uh, frankly modeled exactly on what happened in Richmond in terms of the way the, the, the scholars are asked to engage with questions as opposed to presenting papers. And then I think of, of perhaps even greater interest to the field, the second day will build on the ASLH's really strong tradition of of training and, and uh, development for the profession, because what we hope to do on that second day is to invite representatives from historical institutions from throughout the region, not just in the host institutions region, but throughout the multi-state region, to come and spend a day being inspired and hopefully prepared to go back to their institutions to develop sesquicentennial programs. Uh, the day will involve uh, Dwight Pitcaithley, the retired chief historian of the Park Service, talking about the tough interpretive issues that surround dealing with the Civil War and the, the, the legacies and the causes. Uh, it'll involve presentations by organizations that have done what we consider to be sort of model projects uh, with their collections that relate to the sesquicentennial. And then it'll conclude with a session that'll talk about so what? Why do we do this? Why do we care? Why do we try to talk about the sesquicentennial at this point in time? So if that program is funded, that will give the ASLH a, a very direct hand in the sesquicentennial at a national level. Uh, a second activity that the ASLH has taken uh, leadership on is the effort to create a presidential commission on the sesquicentennial. I think most of you know that there was a congressionally legislated commission for the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth. Uh, we, uh, through Terry Davis's efforts and uh, contacts, pulled together a group of 10 national organizations in Washington in this past April. And we began the discussion with the, the notion that we would try to create a similar sort of congressionally legislated commission. And after two hours of discussion, uh, emerged with a somewhat different approach, and that is that we're going to try and have a presidential commission created. One, because it can be done literally with the stroke of a pen. Two, it doesn't involve the efforts to lobby Congress to try and get legislation passed. And three, because it is something that we thought would not compete directly with any number of the organizations involved who have their own legislative and fundraising agendas. Where we are with that process is that we are forming uh, a coalition for the Civil War sesquicentennial. Uh, we hope to have 18 to 20 members. So far, we have 15. Among those are the ASLH, obviously, the Organization of American Historians, uh, the History Channel, the National Council for Public History, the National Coalition for History, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, Federation of State Humanities Councils, the American Association of Museums, the Gilder Lehrman Institute for American History, and the Society for the Study of African American Life and History. There are other organizations as well that are considering joining. We hope to have 18 to 20 members. We've drafted a statement of purpose for this group, 
and for a potential uh, commission. Uh, and that involves largely promoting the idea of an inclusive sesquicentennial at a national level and coordinating information sharing amongst the various sorts of programs that you've heard here this morning. Uh, our next step is to meet with the new chair of the Endowment for the Humanities, uh, James Leach. We hope to be doing that within the next two to three weeks, and then shortly thereafter to make an approach to the White House. We have an, an avenue or a, a, a portal into the White House to initiate this conversation. So if everything falls as we hope it will fall, by the end of the year there would be a commission in place. Now obviously once the White House decides to do a commission, how that commission is shaped and what its goals and what its charge is may be considerably different than what I've very briefly outlined here. But we are encouraged to believe that President Obama would find this something that is very uh, much of value and very much aligned with his particular outlook on a lot of the issues that would emerge from a discussion of the Civil War sesquicentennial. Um, we're also f uh, forming a National Advisory Council of Scholars. We've gotten James McPherson, uh, William Cooper of Louisiana State University, and Jim Horton from George Washington University to agree to be honorary co-chairs of such a council. So shortly after Labor Day, invitations will go out to over 100 historians and, and scholars related to the Civil War and its legacy, uh, and hopefully bring them on. Uh, this will be a, a council that uh, will be as much for show as go, but nonetheless, we think that having some of the names involved will make it that much more appealing to the White House. So these are both initiatives underway under the aegis of the AASLH, and uh, by April, we'll know whether the Transforming a Nation Legacies of America's Civil War program is going to happen or not and hopefully we'll have news sooner about the Presidential Commission. Uh, one final thing I would uh, uh, urge you all to look into, um, you heard a lot of talk about transportation enhancement funds. I would also encourage you to look under the recovery program for funds. Uh, a, a contact of mine in Washington said that uh, there's a lot of money sitting around there um, for the asking in essence and that Anything that you try to do has to abide by what he referred to as the three T's. The project has to be timely, it has to be targeted, and it has to be temporary. But there is a website, recovery.gov, and I would encourage you to look into that because, as I say, there's literally billions of dollars sitting there. Uh, some of it obviously is extremely targeted, but a great deal of it is much more general in terms of its intent and its uh, proposed uh, use, and uh, you might very well find uh, a clever way to get in there and, and get some of this money. So um, enough talking from us. Let's hear from you, your questions, uh, your comments, and uh, I know there's some people also in the audience who have very uh, aggressive programs in place, and we might want to hear from them. Yes, ma'am. I just want to mention that NEH is another source of funding. And that's Patty Van Tyle, who's in charge of the We the People program. Am I giving you the right appropriate designation? Good. Patty, can you tell us? I have very 
Can you tell us if um, NEH will be looking at their existing grant programs and giving any kind of consideration to projects that we've, you know, those the preservation grant, for example, in with the Civil War sesquicentennial as the anniversary comes up? You know, is it, you said you weren't sure what kind of grant program might emerge for the Civil War 150, well, but will you be looking at the anniversary? There may be a special, like, you know, RFP or something. Yes, sir. I hear the list of partners, but I don't hear the partnerships that have been there for a long time. I don't hear American Battle Protection Program. I don't hear Civil War Preservation Trust. Well, there are a number of, uh, I named organizations that have already agreed to join the coalition. We're in ongoing conversation with probably another half dozen to a dozen organizations, among them the Civil War Preservation Trust. Uh, some of these organizations can make a decision very quickly. Uh, at the executive director level, others of them have to f go to their boards for permission. So uh, there are a number of organizations that are still working this through their process, National Council for History Education, National Council on Social Studies, the Civil War Preservation Trust, the American Historical Association, uh, and a number of others. And Well, and there are certain organizations that by uh, that are prohibited from participating. So the Park Service, for example, we've had a lot of good conversations with Bob Sutton. He's very much in favor of this. He can't put his name to it. We have two organizations that are uh, uh, we've we've designated them observers. Uh, they'll get all the communication but they're not official players that would be the American Library Association and we believe the National Endowment for the Humanities and, and possibly the Smithsonian so the, the um, and there are obviously an, an awful lot I mean there are countless individual institutions that could be a member of such a coalition we've stayed away from going to individual museums or state organizations simply for the logistics involved and, and so forth. Uh, again, uh, we assume that if the White House embraces this, they're going to want to define how it works going forward. But I mean, you raise a good point in that I should have pointed out perhaps that there are a number of organizations we still hope to bring into this coalition that are at various stages of, of weighing whether they want to be involved or not. Yes, ma'am.
I think it's problematic? Um, no, I mean, I don't think it's problematic in that even states that weren't formed at the time of the Civil War have to sort of wrestle with the outcomes of the Civil War, whether that's the 13th and 14th, 15th Amendments, whether that's the nature, what, what, what the nature of citizenship is in the United States, um, the uh, sort of on, the ongoing legacies of, you know, of all sorts of things from race to sectionalism to all sorts. I mean, it, it, it has very wide, very broad ripples once you throw that, that stone. And obviously, there are going to be different, you know, sentiments in different parts of the country. But, uh, I, I mean, from my perspective, I think these are themes that should find some resonance, whether you're from, you know, California or Virginia or Vermont or wherever it is. If I could add to that two things. First, last year, if, if you, any of you came to the session that James Horton presented, uh, he was at that time and still is part of the year a visiting professor at the University of Hawaii. And he shared with the group uh, a story about how one would think that Hawaii is so far distant and so far out of the orbit of the Civil War that he was amazed to find that the sugar plantations in Hawaii were developed most aggressively by a whole group of people that were literally lured there from Alabama and brought with them an awful lot of their loyalties and so forth. And then I would also ask Lorraine McConaughey, immediately to your right, who's at the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, to perhaps speak to this because you did so well last year pointing that point. There's no, no good turn goes unrewarded or un, unpunished. And I would, I would go further to say that if, if you come to ASLH in Richmond in 2011 and you go through our exhibition and you find it's divorced of relevance from anything that you, know, you think you're interested in, then we failed because that has been very much in the, from the very beginning of this, that this was going to be, um, this was going to talk about you know, Union soldiers who fought in Virginia, for example, who came from every corner of of the uh, of the country and that if we've if we've just catered this to 
you know, the interests of Virginians or of Southerners, then we've really not done our job because that's not the point. That's not what we're trying to do. Just one, one final thing uh, to pick up on Paul's point. Um, in pre preparing this NEH grant, we had a number of telephone conferences, and some, some of the most heated exchanges were between uh, the uh, folks in Oklahoma who are one of our host institutions at Oklahoma, the Oklahoma History Center, and... Uh, a historian from Atlanta and a few others because it it led right into this whole argument amongst civil war historians about the importance of the Trans-Mississippi and the Western theater versus the Eastern theater and all this sort of thing. So there are, there are these interesting kinds of threads that are in, in some ways insider baseball. They're, they're particular only to those people that read deeply into the history of the Civil War. But it, in a broader sense, get at these questions of legacy and cause, because it's about expansion. It's about the West and the Trans-Mississippi area being the great prize, in essence, to, in, in many respects. So uh, there's, there's a lot of stories here that uh, will, as I think somebody was saying on the panel, it'll be new information for people. It'll be pe th things that people who even think they know or do know a great deal about the war and its legacies have not really thought about. Uh, and that uh, we're counting on being uh, a really key part of what this one project would uh, produce or, or develop. Other questions? I think there was somebody, yes, way in the back. Well, one of the, one of the things um, that we had to do to uh, get the coalition working is, as I mentioned, was to draft a statement of purpose. And because the ASLH was the uh, sort of core organization pulling this together, their council had to review it. And one of the things that came back from that review was, well, we ought to call it the Coalition for the Civil War Sesquicentennial and Civil Rights or something and some, so forth. That led to a, a frank exchange of, of views, and we were able to take the statement of purpose and work into it the notion that there is this incredible congruence between 150 years of history related to the Civil War and 50 years related to the Civil Rights Movement. And you begin to, if all you have to do is sit down with one of those timelines of history, it becomes very apparent that in 1961, 1962, 1963, there are things happening that have become iconic with our, our notion of the civil rights movement. And if you read Robert Cook's book, Troubled Commemoration, one of the things you learn very quickly is that one of the reasons that the initial centennial sort of ran into the rocks was the fact of the civil rights movement and its explosion at that very point in time and the insensitivity of the initial leadership group who did things like plan the first commission meeting in South Carolina and Charleston where African-American members of the commission were not allowed to stay in the hotels that the rest of the commission members were staying in. So there is, there is this congruence, and I think one of the things that uh, the commission, if, if it comes to be, hopes to do is to, to draw those links in very tangible ways so that people think about the fact that one of the legacies of the war was, in many respects, the failure 
to solve one of the root causes and that it takes 100 years for our society to begin to really address that. So I, I, that you raise a very good point. Barbara? Yeah, and I was just going to add, I think one of the, some of the discussions that have been happening both at the national level and at state levels is really thinking about, is this a commemoration of four years of battles right. Right. or 150 50 years, years of history? Mm -hmm. and I think what the public is really interested in, if you're only talking about four years of battles, you have this audience. If you're willing to talk about 150 years of history right. on how, starting with the Civil War and then looking at all those ripples as they go out, it brings you right to today. Right. And that actually is what we're finding, I think probably many of you are too, that that's where there's a larger public and a larger audience for this. And I just want to mention, we're, we have a website in Pennsylvania that's going to be launching at the end of September. And one of the things that we wanted to do to make sure we did that is we have, you know, there's nothing like structure to make you do something. So the website actually has a section, then and now. And I'd like to share with you that we asked um, a whole group of scholars working through Penn State to identify different people to do some of the content for this website and to write little pieces. The one they all stumbled on, <laughs> so nice. and we had to come back and totally rewrite was then and now. Um, it, it's, it's not easy for historians to do that, mm. uh, but we thought it was really important to push and take a chance on that and to kind of extend ourselves, because I think that's going to be a nucleus of where we're going to bring more people in, and it'll be interesting once we do the, the evaluation of that to see how many people are going to hit on that. I'm just going to say that um, I think that ASLH got it right when they started talking about how this is 150 years of history since the Civil War began and not just about 150 years since the Civil War and looking at that picture in time. And I'm just going to suggest that... Um, make my radical statements here, that it's not really even about civil war to civil, it's not about civil war to civil rights. This is really at root about um, who we are as Americans and what race is all about in our culture. And let's face it, probably half of you are feeling uncomfortable right now, and there's a reason why we haven't tackled these conversations before. And I think the challenge for our organizations really is how can we acknowledge that this event in American history and the way that it occurred, the culture that led to the Civil War and that came out of it is really, is really a huge piece of who we are today even still without alienating those audiences, for example, that are interested primarily in the military story and in celebrating pieces of that. And, you know, how do we sort of have those conversations in a way that moves us forward but that doesn't lose half of the audience that's traditionally been there for this topic. And I don't have an answer for that yet. I think um, we're still kind of trying to figure it out. And my best answer right now is that we're bringing in as many different viewpoints as we can, including, you know, the Sons of Union veterans and those traditional Civil War interest groups, as well as scholars that have been pushing the envelope on things like race and diaspora and things like that. So um, I guess I'm just pushing it back toward all of you that we've got a big challenge. And I think probably 50 years from now, historians will look back and say we got some things wrong. But I think the fact that we're asking these questions means we're, we're making progress. And what better time, you know, no matter what your politics are, Democrat or Republican, it's very interesting 
no matter who you voted for, that we have an African-American president at the same time that we're commemorating the Civil War's 150th. It's sort of an interesting bookend to our topics. Well, I th- and I think questions of defining citizenship, I mean, from before antebellum period and then during the Civil War and after, and there are, uh, you, you look at the amendments that were passed, but then you go into a state like Kentucky that had laws, a lot of, a lot of st- states had poll taxes, a lot of states had um, barriers. Were they legislated or situational or emotional or relationship, whatever those were? So this whole context of who's defining who is an American citizen. And so there are many, many people who are going, who are alive today and who will be participating or at least be in the world while the sesquicentennial is happening. And they may not necessarily think this has nothing to do with me. You know, my family were enslaved. We weren't American citizens. We didn't fight on either side. So I think it provides a very scary opportunity for historians to create that platform and what do we have we've got the records we've got the um, we've got the sources these this raw prime material that we can say here's what the record says here's what these artifacts suggest here's what the photograph represents here's what the portrait represents this is what was happening in the state house and so we really if we take the responsibility to do that can create that safe haven because facts are not as scary as analysis and interpretation. So we can say, come to the Kentucky Historical Society. We want to talk about um, this whole context of race relations in Kentucky following Reconstruction till today. That's a very scary topic in Kentucky, I will tell you. You know, I'm not sure how we would frame that. I'm, it's a conversation they are happening. There's actually some new publications. Tracy K. Meyer at the University of Louisville just published a book, um, uh, an oral history of of uh, civil rights in Louisville, Kentucky, and there's a, a wonderful collection of oral history interviews at the Kentucky Historical Society of people who were interviewed in the 1970s talking about the Civil War. It's astounding. You know, it's really, it's kind of mind-bending to think about somebody who was alive in 1970 whose oral history includes comments about the Civil War. Well, what that tells us is that it, there's kind of no time frame for how we view the past. And when we have that familial connection or that reality of our, my, my responsibility would be to um, make sure we make those things available, or we, we as historians. And there are people who won't have any interest in this. And you said, you know, you're talking about in Virginia, 
they won't be engaged, they won't be interested. But there'll be a lot of people who don't know they're interested, who don't know what's available to them. And I think there's a real opportunity for us, frankly, in terms of sustainability of our institutions, to start a dialogue, to encourage that dialogue that brings people through the door that didn't necessarily know they liked history, that didn't know they were interested in the stories of their past and the place that they live. And we're looking at this as an incredible opportunity for us to put, as Jackie said, put the resources out there, let people touch stuff, see it, understand it, and then let them help us decide how to promote that, how to present that. And Lorraine said. Yes, Lorraine. I'd like to add on top of that two or three things. First, just a, a reading recommendation, if you will. The very latest issue of Harper's Magazine has two very good articles in it. One of them is about the, the importance of the humanities, and I don't remember the author. I recommend it to you, however. The second is by an author named Naomi Klein, and it's about the International uh, Human Rights Conference of 2001, and then there's one coming up. And it talks a great deal about slavery and about reparations and about some of the things we've been talking about. A second thing to think about that builds on Lorraine's point is that one of the least threatening ways, I believe at least, into talking about some of these issues is from this perspective of memory history, if you will. Because so oftentimes where I think discussion about the Civil War breaks down is about the, the, the facts and the lost cause and all this sort of thing, because those who have studied it can pick apart an awful lot of what the lost cause is about and so forth. If you come at it, however, from the perspective of David Blight and others who talk about memory and its value, to my mind at least, there's something that's somewhat less threatening. It gives you an avenue in to validate everybody's point of view at the start because everyone will have their memories and to them their memories are quite valid. Now then the question of how you do good history sure. and what mm -hmm. the evidence tells you perhaps leads you to get people to reconsider what they think they know about something. But this whole field of memory studies is something I think that's extremely provocative. Barbara? And, and, you know, I think the amazing thing about that is that it is all-inclusive as right. well because the, act that the, the practice of memory is ongoing. It never stops. And, and I think you know, this whole idea of how to make this current, the fact is that 
is just what you said, that they, they say more about who we are now mm -hmm. than they say about mm -hmm. the civil war itself, because it is this process of, of remembering. And when you read the history of those um, commemorations, they don't tell you anything new about the civil war. Right. <laughs> you don't learn about the civil war. You learn about you know, Woodrow Wilson, and you learn about mm -hmm. it. run over our time. I, I, I'm going to close by telling everybody that I want the patent on the annoy people in equal measure quote from Mr. Levinger, <laughs> because I think if you want to state in, in very succinct terms perhaps what you want to accomplish as you approach the sesquicentennial, there, there are far worse measures one could come up with than to say that if you've annoyed people in equal measure, you've probably done your job. Thank you all very much. Uh, this is a conversation we picked up next year. I know I have your contact information. I think it was too.